Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. With Colm Lynch, who is, I guess, Mr. UN, Colm, is how I'll describe you. You're, of course, uh, our senior global correspondent there based in New York. And uh, I can't think of anybody better to talk about all things UN General Assembly with than you. So, first of all, did you survive the week? Uh, I did survive the week. I am here this morning, so I think that's a testament to my survival survivability. I think I think it's gotten harder and harder. I don't know how you feel, but it feels like UN General Assembly week each year gets more crowded, more jam packed with side events and and meetings. It is it has really become I don't know like Davos plus World Health Assembly plus COP plus everything kind of just all put together. Yeah, I mean, for years when I worked at newspapers and magazines, I usually spent most of my time inside the UN, so really focusing on the governments. And I mean, frankly, I'm I'm kind of stunned at the amount of activity that goes on outside the halls uh, of the UN, and the amount of um, sort of firepower and all these conferences and sort of the level of people that they have at them. I mean, we had Andrew Steer, who is, of course runs the Bezos Earth Fund. Uh, on our stage at DevX. And, you know, we're one of the many organizations that contribute to the chaos on the outside of the UN. We host a three days worth of conferences and side events and dinners and drinks and all kinds of things. And Andrew, I thought, was really compelling. He was actually referring not to UNGA, but referring to COP, which is coming up in December. And he was saying, you know what, there's the official track, but where a lot of the action actually happens is the unofficial, where you get the multi-stakeholder solutions where you get philanthropies and NGOs and businesses and others getting together with government. Um, I don't know, did, did that play out for you as you look at what happened this year at UN General Assembly? Well, it's, you know, there's always the, the focus on the General Assembly debate, right? And so that's when the uh, world leaders get before the General Assembly call and they give their speeches. And generally, they're pretty tedious and they go on for hours and hours and days and days, um, you know, you can, they are very useful in the sense of just taking the temperature of where the state of world affairs is at the moment. But apart from that, I mean, there is a lot of, a lot of wasted verbiage. I mean, traditionally, most of the most important stuff took place in sort of bilateral meetings, you know, was President Obama going to meet with the Iranian president and begin talks on the nuclear, um, you know, uh, on some sort of nuclear deal? Um, you know, you had sort of in the past Clinton, you know, meeting with uh, with Fidel Castro at a, at a luncheon. So, you know, a lot of the most interesting stuff always sort of happened on the sidelines. But now you have sort of in the mix is all of these other players. And at a time when everybody is sort of feeling that the governments themselves don't really have the wherewithal to kind of solve their own problems. So, um, you know, so these groups, these other stakeholders are certainly becoming players, but, you know, the UN is an intergovernmental organization and they guard their prerogatives pretty jealously. So there's always a bit of tension in in the degree to which these stakeholders can actually, um, you know, get inside the building and affect the, the intergovernmental talks. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the number of iconic moments like the ones you described from the past would have been limited this year just by the fact that four members of the P5, the so-called P5 of the U.S. Security Council, didn't show. President Biden was the only one. Um, so that certainly limits the, the potential. Um, and I guess in addition to that, you've got, you know, a big story this week that you covered, an exclusive that you found out about the U.S. position on Secretary General Guterres's plan to put $500 billion a year against the SDGs, um, which I think just sort of goes to show the fact that the U.S. was trying to block it, it, it does kind of contribute to this idea that it's not what happens at the U.N., it's what happens on the outside, because some of the most powerful members of the U.N. are actively trying to block the U.N. from having a bigger role. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting case because essentially what the U.S. is trying to do is that there is enormous pressure from the global south, from the U.N. Secretary General to have the United Nations and the U.N. General Assembly, which is the most democratic institution on the planet, 103, 193 member states. So this is like all uh, this is a sort of forum that gives small countries a voice equal to the big powers and so for the united states um discussing issues about um how you know wealthy countries are going to spend their monies they're not particularly comfortable with doing it at the un and they have been trying quite aggressively to you know preserve the role of the multilateral banks the world bank the imf uh, the g7 the g20 as the real decision makers on these issues and the global south is saying we don't have representation there so that's been a source of enormous t tension and the interesting thing is is the secretary general's uh, proposal for this 500 billion dollar stimulus in principle the americans don't object to it i mean it, but but they want these initiatives to play out within the multilateral development banks. Secretary Yellen has been quite active over the last year pushing reform of the multilateral banks, and she wants the discussions to take place there. And they feel that they um, that it's just, you know it's a smaller group. It's easier to make decisions. They're not going to get into the kind of disputes with many of the more difficult UN member states that they have. Um, at the United Nations, I mean, already, you know, we had an, uh, a, a, you know, we had a declaration on the Sustainable Development Goals. It seemed to have gone through. All the world leaders kind of weighed in on the importance of achieving them. But a group of eleven countries, including North Korea, Russia, Syria, uh, a number of others, um, you know, are sort of threatening to block formal adoption of this declaration when it comes up for a vote in the General Assembly in the coming weeks. So, you know, I think yeah. that the United States is kind of, you know, it's not illogical that they would be concerned about having these negotiations within the UN General Assembly. Yeah, increasingly, the UN General Assembly, as you say, it is a democracy, but it's a democracy increasingly of autocracies. <laughs> and, you know, just given, given the direction of uh, democratic decline in so many countries around the world, uh, but you can understand why smaller countries don't want to lose the one venue where they get some voice and some power. Uh, you can see why some of the bigger countries would say, yeah, I'd rather not have these decisions made among smaller economies that might be heavily influenced by, you know, geopolitical rivals like China, like Russia, like India and others. So um, it's a fascinating thing to watch to watch play out. I feel like one of the big themes this year which relates a lot to your story about the $500 billion a year, is just that it became clear to many that there isn't going to be somebody on a white horse riding to the rescue um, 
you know, saying here's all the money needed to achieve the SDGs. And so instead, much of the focus was on the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks and how they could be kind of financially engineered without a lot of new taxpayer money coming to them, but sort of financially engineered to do much more, um, as well as like, how do we find better ways to make the development dollars that do exist go further? How do we make this whole enterprise more effective? And I felt like that was an underlying theme. I ran into the president of one multilateral development bank uh, at the UN uh, Secretariat, and he said this was the most practical UNGA he's been to. You know, it was just, it felt very technical to him. We were talking about financial reform, you know, it wasn't so high-minded and visionary. Um, I don't know, did you, did you feel like that's a, a, the way it played out from your perspective, Colin? I don't know. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this General Assembly debate was the degree to which, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned before, previous General Assembly um, sessions have generally focused on the issues of conflict, on security, on wars in the Middle East, on genocide, on all these security issues. And this is the year where, you know, development is really forcing its way onto the agenda. Um, you know, the U.S. is trying to sort of steer things back into the multilateral development banks. But, you know, the Europeans are more flexible on this issue and kind of realize that politically, even though their treasury departments and their capitals may be sympathetic to the U.S. position, that they need to give, that they need to sort of resolve this standoff with the global south. I mean, they're seeking greater um, diplomatic political support in their broader conflict with Russia, with the tensions with China, and that they need the global south on board for diplomatic political reasons. And so um, one of the reasons, I mean, the U.S. ultimately did not prevail in trying to soften the language on the, um, on the Secretary General stimulus uh, plan and largely because the EU and and all the, most of the European countries except for the UK um, didn't back the United States, so they kind of were divided on this. But nevertheless, I mean, it it basically shows that the the that this whole trend is really gaining power, and that you know a lot of the donor uh, countries, um, you know, who you know aren't keen to sort of start writing more checks, that they have to deal with this issue if they want to address the broader you know, competition for hearts and minds in their sort of geopolitical struggle with Russia and China. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devex.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. So you wrote a special edition of our daily newsletter, the DevEx Newswire, uh, that kind of recapped the big things that happened at UN General Assembly. And I'm just curious, are there any things that just stood out for you, Colm, in particular, big moments either, you know, within the official proceedings or on the sidelines that, that you think people would be interested to hear? Well, uh, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the difficulties they had with uh, adopting, you know, I mean, there were a whole series of important high-level uh, discussions on health, 
Um, there were three high-level meetings on health. There was a high-level meeting on the uh, sustainable development goals. There was uh, a ministerial meeting on um, the uh, on the summit of the future, which is going to play out next year. And you know, generally, these are not particularly complicated, you know, declarations to get adopted. And and I think the fact I mean, I mentioned the eleven countries that had. Um, you know, that are threatening to sort of cause problems in the adoption of the Declaration on the Sustainable Development Goals. They're also doing it on the health declarations. And there is also enormous tension um, in the negotiations on the sustainable, I mean, on, on, on the ministerial declaration on the summit of the future. So all of this pretends a very difficult, very contentious year ahead. Um, there are still not agreements on all the declarations which we all thought were adopted. Maybe there will be. But um, this is going to be a big year for UN reform. The Secretary General wants to cap that off in September of 2024 with the Summit of the Future. And there have already been signs of deep divisions within the Global South and the Global North over this. So to me, what this Secretary, this General Assembly sort of indicates is that um, there are a lot of unresolved issues and that we're going to see some really very difficult fights over the next couple, over the coming months. Yeah, I had one um, senior executive from an international agency WhatsApp me an emoji of the scream face when I asked about how it was to deal with all of these high-level panels this year. I mean, it really was kind of overdone. Uh, you know, if you work in the development and health sector, boy, like you're supposed to be uh, one day saying the most important issue in the world is pandemics, and the next day it's tuberculosis. I, I think it was in a way destined not to get the kind of high level support that everyone had hoped that they would get just by putting them all together. Uh, and it does seem like the Secretary General, by putting some emphasis on the summit of the future, maybe, I don't know, created a challenge here for organizers for this year's high level panels, right? The sense of, well, what is our priority? Is it the summit of the future or is it all of these high level summits we're doing this year? And you know, I guess it now means we're all going to be talking about some of the future and, and, and what can we expect to come from that? That seemed to be at least one topic I heard several people talking about during this, this past week in New York. Yeah, that's going to be the big discussion this year. I mean, there were efforts to sort of start because there was a, there was, they anticipated that this was going to be a difficult discussion. And, and so one of the issues that, um, that came up earlier in the year was that uh, a number of countries, countries from the global south, um, you know, sent letters to the UN leadership and to the, the, the facilitators of the negotiations on a declaration for the um, summit of the future, and basically said to them, you got to stop having these formal uh, discussions and meetings. We need to focus on the SDGs. So there is a certain suspicion that, you know, the issue that's most important for the Global South, which is the sustainable development goals, that they're in, that they have been going backwards, that they're not doing well, and that they sort of suspect that there is a push um, to sort of change the subject to other discussions. And uh, the, the summit of the future is going to be on a whole range of issues, basically trying to outline a plan to sort of um, set the stage for the UN's development over the next 25 years. They will be dealing with issues like artificial intelligence, digital, uh, like trying to set the rules of the role, uh, road on internet issues through the digital compact, um, you know, uh, discussions on uh, the basis for, um, you know, peace and security, a whole range of issues we have policy briefings coming out every couple of weeks on various issues that 
uh, that deal with the summit of the future. So it's going to be a big, gnarly kind of negotiation, which is going to try to sort of, you know, set the stage for, you know, modernizing the United Nations. And it's going to have to go through, you know, the meat grinder, which is the intergovernmental negotiation process. And it's not clear how it's going to come out on uh, at the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. And it does seem like, you know, the most prominent issue for the summit of the future at this point is AI. And what that exactly means is unclear. But, you know, I talked to many people inside the UN who say that's that's going to be the thing that people are really focused on. Uh, obviously, you know, it is a major issue and it's maybe a long term issue, but it's also a little bit of the flavor of the month. And so, you know, what, what will this really turn into tangibly is important. Um, I, I'm thinking about some of the highlights for me this past week. You know, on our own stage at DevX, we had Rory Stewart, uh, the president of GiveDirectly, although he's just stepping down now to be senior advisor at GiveDirectly. And he was really compelling. You know, he's a former secretary of state for DFID in the UK. And you would expect somebody who comes from the traditional development world to say, you know, hey, we do good things, we work hard, uh, and yeah, maybe not everything is perfect, but you know, to be a bit more defending of development. And he kind of was the opposite. He sort of said, look, this whole enterprise is not working. And that's why we need to to go to cash transfers, which he is a real evangelist for. But I thought he was particularly compelling. He really had the audience thinking and challenged, you know, everybody to kind of question the way we all do development work and whether it needs to fundamentally change. And in his mind, go much, much more for just giving money directly to people who need it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I miss that. But one of the things that strikes me kind of in the background is this whole question of the um, the integrity of aid delivery. And, you know, we, we did stories some time back about um, the Ethiopian government um, diverting large amounts of money and resources from the World Food Programme. Uh, we at DevX had a big story at the beginning of the uh, of the week about um, Somalia and um, a, a scam that involves local officials, people that uh, operate and run uh, uh, camps for the displaced, um, you know, people who kind of act as go between between the UN agencies and the people who have needs. And we and and the UN did an internal report and they found that. Often these groups of people were skimming off twenty to thirty percent of the, you know, the the aid that these people were getting, forcing them to pay rent, to to go into, you know, into camps for the internally displaced. And these are people who are, are who have been facing, you know, near death from drought and the um, and and the threat of famine in Somalia. And they come into these uh, internally displaced camps, and they're basically shaken down. And so. You know, it raids broader questions about the ability, not only of the UN and its agency, but USAID and other European donors about, you know, the the difficulties with ensuring that taxpayer money actually goes to the people who are most in need. I believe Reuters had a piece after um, ours came out about how um, the European Union had suspended funding um, for, you know, temporarily for the program in Somalia. And, um, you know, the U.S., I think, is still committed. Um, they've given sort of over a billion dollars in terms of, you know, the response to the potential famine there, um, but really trying to look at ways to find out how you can deliver aid without it going into the wrong pocket. Yeah, and I think that's very much of a piece with 
this broader theme I mentioned earlier around, you know, the way we do development work, you know, if there isn't going to be lots of new money coming to the rescue, figuring out how do we make the money we have go further and be more effective. And you're absolutely right. You know, verifying aid delivery is a key part of that. I, I was part of an off the record session side event, uh, but I can say that the topic of it was exactly this, you know, how do you get more verified data around what's actually happening to aid money as it goes out there and tries to get delivered. And you're reporting on this column, which was just absolutely fantastic and so important. I think just puts really into focus Somalia, Ethiopia, but really everywhere that development and aid dollars are spent understanding, you know, where is it going? Is it getting to the, the people who actually need it? Um, and there's different kinds of ways money can be wasted. And, and I think the most prominent is corruption, but there's probably more that just gets wasted in sort of operational overhead and, and other forms of waste. And uh, getting to better verification of aid delivery is a really important ongoing theme uh, that I think your stories just helped to underline. Yeah, I think also, I mean, the politics are really sensitive on this issue. So, you know, these stories come out and you want to do these stories because they sort of expose kind of weaknesses in the system. And, you you know, you hope that these provide an opportunity for people to focus on trying to find ways to resolve them. But, you know, these revelations also, you know, send a, a message to policymakers and lawmakers you know, they keep hearing this story over and over again, and they, you know, they become exhausted about funding these programs. So there's a real risk that, I mean, it, you know, the, the question Somalia poses is a very deep and sort of striking moral dilemma for policymakers and for the UN. And the question is, is, is it impossible to ensure that money is not diverted? And if so, what is the answer? And if the answer is to cut off aid, um, what are the implications of that? And the implications can result in large number of loss of life. Um, you saw that in, in Ethiopia and Tigray, the U.S. cut off assistance while they kind of tried to get to the bottom of what was happening in Ethiopia. And that, you know, inflicted enormous pain on needy people in Tigray. And so, um, you know, a cutoff of aid in Somalia could be devastating. And so, you know, the question is, do you need to accept a certain uh, degree of corruption? Is that part of the requirement for trying to help people? Or is there a way of 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 doing this without, um, you know, without losing all that money? Yeah, you're right. It is a moral dilemma. You'd like to think that even though it can be tempting to make aid conditional, that you don't end up essentially making the poorest people bargaining chips in some kind of great diplomatic game. Um, and I think it also points to the fact that, you know, while Rory Stewart is very compelling about Give Directly and the many places it can be used, the idea that you're going to be able to directly transfer money to someone's cell phone predisposes the, you know, presupposes that they have a cell phone, that they have an internet connection, that they live somewhere where they can get access to a place where they can show up with their phone and convert that into money, which gets converted into food. And in a, in a lot of the most challenging environments, like in Tigray, like in Somalia, you might have to really rely on a more traditional form of, of direct cash transfers, you know, cash or through local NGOs. And it's therefore a lot harder to get your hands around ensuring it really gets to the people who, who it's intended for. Yeah, I mean, in Somalia, a lot of the recipients are re receiving it as as cash payouts or through vouchers. 
Um, but there's like such an established and sophisticated network of, of scammers that, you know, you take your voucher, you go to the local market to buy food and, you know, and, and the sort of retailers are, you know, are basically taking a cut of, you know, the cash that you have in order to fulfill you know, the request for food or whatever goods. It's, it's really like a mafia, right, Carl? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it, 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 you, you, it's a huge amount of money, right? I mean, there's enormous amount. I mean, you saw this also, uh, the Houthis in Yemen um, largely control, you know, how aid is delivered in that country. And so, you know, they have a very sophisticated method for ensuring that they get a pretty large cut. And and also, you know, you find in Somalia as well that, you know, the people who are kind of the gatekeepers, they would perhaps steer more aid to people within their clans. If you're from a minority clan, you might be excluded because, you know, you don't fit into the whole sort of patronage logic of, you know, aid distribution. But, you know, this is a problem that has been going on for decades. I mean, the, the story on Somalia, I went back and I looked at some of the coverage from 2011, when there was um, uh, an issue about the terrorist organization Al Shabaab stealing money and you know and, and resources and aid from WFP, and and a lot of the structures. I mean, Shabaab wasn't um, identified in this investigation, but a lot of the the ways in which aid was diverted were similar. You know, there were local gatekeepers. Um, some of them might have been local humanitarian workers. It might have been local government officials. There were members of the Somali national armed, armed forces, the intelligence community, who would try to get aid di diverted to some of their family members. Um, so, so the, the the forms of of abuse, you know, are fairly similar to the way that they were ten years ago, and and that's in some ways, you know, really disturbing element of it. But also, it shows you how these structures of corruption, how deeply embedded they are in, in, in these communities. That's right. And and how if we want to get to these SDGs, if we don't have a chance of getting there, we kind of have to change the way we operate and, and do it more quickly. Listen, it was uh, an intense week. Uh, I don't know how many steps we got in running around from side event to side event. Uh, it, it was really something, but uh, it was also great because it was great to see so many people uh, in the global development community and many people probably listening to this podcast. So uh, thank you, Colin Lynch, for all your incredible reporting and all your moderating of sessions this week and uh, for giving us an, an overview as a, a real UN expert on, on what this year's Anga meant. Thanks, Raj. It was, it was good fun. And my favorite, just my favorite note was uh, the Turkish president complaining um, the local Turkish media about all of the brightly colored painting that the UN sort of laid out on the steps leading into the U.S., which were supposed to reflect the colors of the sustainable development goals. And he thought that they were uh, LGBTQ plus um, uh, colors and, and sort of was complaining about that locally. He didn't seem to realize that they were the SDG colors as well. They are as well. I, I love the fact that they're the same. You know, I've got my, my sneakers that I wear sometimes and I call them my SDG sneakers and they were made, I think, for Pride Month. Uh, so to me, it's a benefit, but I guess to the Turkish president, it isn't. That's a great story. Thank you, Colin. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, 
become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.